Welcome to Rising with the Tide. Hello, hello. Another day, another live stream, another show. We're super excited today to welcome Aline Brown, a New York-based uh, reporter for The Intercept. She has words published in The Nation, Yes Magazine, uh, The Intercept, as we mentioned, and various other publications. Um, her series, Policing the Pipeline, which is 17 parts, I think, so far. <laughs> <laughs> and her other series, Oil and Water, uh, have particularly caught my attention. But uh, on in total, I've tried to count, and <laughs> this is uh, an estimate, but you have around 200 articles they've written for The Intercept. Wow, I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> At first, I was like, you know, what? I'll just count them because there's no, I don't really know how else to, to see the number. So I just started. And after a while, I was like, okay, this is getting a little bit. <laughs> but you've done so much work uh, for them. And I got to say, big props to you. I mean, Intercept mm -hmm. is like one of the publications I have, I think, the most respect for. And, and I know a lot of people around me really respect uh, their work as well so including yours obviously um so yeah thank you for what you do and thank you for coming on the show thank how you. are you doing i'm doing all right thank you so much for having me yeah no it's uh it's nice of you to to give us a bit of your time maybe we can uh, start with a little bit of your own background as a journalist as a reporter as an investigative reporter uh maybe kind of how you got into this uh, business this line of work and and I don't know what motivated you, I guess, to enter this, uh, this kind of world. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I guess I've always been a curious person and um, I've always enjoyed writing and been good at it. Uh, so um, when I went to college, um, I got a journalism degree. At that point, I wasn't fully committed to pursuing journalism. Um, you know, I think I was never very interested in um, sort of newspaper reporting um, that really adhered to um, ideas about objectivity that I was not quite aligned with. Um, you know, there were a lot of people at my university, for example, who said that they didn't even vote because they needed to protect their objectivity. And it just seemed a little bit false to me. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm interested in hearing all sides of a situation and understanding um, the different interests that everyone is driven by. Um, but I wasn't really excited by um, the culture that I saw in journalism school. Um, so for a while after I graduated, I was doing a lot of different things, um, kind of interested in community organizing um, for a while, but honestly, I wasn't that great at it. <laughs> um, and um, whenever I uh, pursued journalism, things. They went well, um, you know, did some internships and, um, and ultimately um, kind of kept looking for where my skills I, I thought could be the most impactful and um, investigative journalism ended up being what that seemed to be. So, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. And um, how exactly did you find yourself kind of working with, I guess, would you say you work mainly for The Intercept? Yep, yep. I'm yeah. full-time at The Intercept and have been right. um, almost since the beginning. Um, you know, I was working for a community publication in uh, Minneapolis, where I'm from, for a while. Um, and then 
again, didn't see a lot of journalism opportunities in the Twin City in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And um, a lot of the kind of magazine style reporting that I was seeing, um, investigative journalism was based in New York. Um, so I did an internship at The Nation magazine um, where there was some work that I appreciated being published. And um, then out of that, that, that internship is mostly fact-checking. So right. um, I was doing fact-checking and research for a lot of a lot of different people um, for a year, about a year after that. And it just happened that um, one of the, the people that I was talking to you about, about getting gigs um, knew uh, the, the first um, executive editor at The Intercept as they were launching. And so I started fact checking um, the first pieces that The Intercept launched with, um, kind of always with the idea um, that I tried to be pretty vocal about uh, that I wanted to be reporting and, um, you know, was particularly interested in reporting about climate issues. I had I'd done some fact checking for Naomi Klein's um, climate change book, mm -hmm. This This Changes Everything. Yeah. Um, and so uh, really felt that that was an area that needed a lot more reporting. And, you know, I think now there's a really... Um, there's a lot of really great climate reporters doing good work and a lot of, um, journalistic or organizations really investing in that. But at mm -hmm. that time, um, there just wasn't, you didn't see the urgency, um, in, in media that, that we're starting to see now. So it felt important to me that the, the intercept, um, really, uh, um, invest in in climate and environmental reporting. Um, yeah. Yeah. So were those, um, I guess the, the Glenn Greenwald, uh, days of the intercept. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Has, um, just, I, obviously this is stuff that, uh, I don't think we want to stay on for too long, but I do feel like I have to ask if, because it is a publication that, you know, I, I guess I care about in whatever sense uh, that, that means. Um, but, uh, was it what do they call it like a parasocial <laughs> relationship with the intercept as a, <laughs> right. as a publication yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um have things changed I, I mean i guess i don't know how much you can really say about it but i uh, what i wonder is really how the intercept has uh, evolved a little bit through time and and whether these kind of bigger changes have impacted you as a worker there or uh, or have impacted how you feel about the, the work that The Intercept does? Um, I mean, I think The Intercept has certainly evolved over the, the years that it's been around. Um, you know, the, the vision at the very be beginning was quite different than where we've landed. You know, they were talking about having all these different outlets that were sort of working together and maybe we would even cover sports. And, you know, it was just this really kind of sprawling idea. And um, now the focus is much um, I think more clear. Um, and I mean, I don't think, I mean, Glenn's departure hasn't impacted my work. Um, mm -hmm. I think I've always, I, I don't see a change in the intercepts investment in, um, investigative reporting. You know, I think, um, Glenn's work and, um, you know, maybe some of the other work that the intercept, the earlier work that the intercept was publishing at times had more of um, like 
an opinionated voice. I think that there's there's still a lot of room for that at the intercept, yeah. but um, maybe there's been a little bit of a um, more of a focus on uh, reporting that's rooted in investigation and um, yeah, again, I mean, even Glenn's work had has that element to it, but um, I think right now what I what I hear from my editors is that we want we want to um, you know do work that nobody else is doing and really um, focus on um, reporting and uncovering um, important details about the world that aren't out there. So yeah, I, I find that I definitely still get to do that, and um, I think our environment our environmental reporting um, I see more investment there. Um, my colleague Sharon Lerner is also doing really great um, investigative work around, um, you know, toxic chemicals and um, all kinds of environmental issues. So we also have Naomi Klein as a correspondent. Right. And yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm, I don't think Glenn's departure has changed much for me and I'm still pretty excited about what I get yeah. to do there. Yeah. Naomi Klein's book, um, I think, I think the shock doctrine one was really one of the most transformative like moments for me personally as a, as I finished it, I just had this big whoa <laughs> kind of moment. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, and I think that wasn't, you know, I guess you don't really think of that as a climate book necessarily, but it really is. And, mm -hmm. you know, it really has, you know, shaped my thinking about a lot of this stuff. So Yeah. And I guess it shows very much the the more insidious aspects of um climate conflicts or climate climate um adjacent adjacent conflicts mm -hmm. and i feel like um you know to segue this is something that you as well uh have done quite well with especially your series on policing the pipeline which um you know i've read i think most of them if not all of them uh and it's yeah, it, it's really fantastic stuff. I landed on it personally while I was just doing uh, research for my thesis, but I think this is something that, you know, everyone stands to benefit from reading because it's, I mean, we'll get into it, the, the details, but there are universal lessons, I think, to be learned from this specific conflict. Um, so maybe we can just start with the beginning of Policing the Pipeline which starts with an interview with a certain uh, Oxendine Mulliver, a state mm -hmm. employee. Can you maybe tell us about what happened to uh, Oxendine? I hope I'm saying her name right. Yeah, so I think you are, um, but I would have to, have to ask her again. It's been a while. Um, so Danielle was this tribal liaison brought on by Minnesota's Department of Commerce. Um, I believe she's Ojibwe. Um, and, you know, her job... Um, was to be this go-between as um, Minnesota decided um, whether and how it was gonna allow this Canadian corporation Enbridge um, to build this um, massive uh, tar sands oil pipeline. And so this is line three. Um, line three existed prior to the completion of this construction project this year. Um, however, Enbridge, what Enbridge was trying to do at the time that Danielle was working was um, basically massively expand it and reroute it. Um, so the pipeline 
um, is now in operation. And I believe it has about double the capacity that it did before. And it takes a new route through um, Minnesota. And it, it's basically connecting um, the this tar sands oil region of Canada with um, this, I guess, uh, transport center in Wisconsin, where it goes on to all kinds of all kinds of other places um, and is refined. Um, so anyway, Minnesota was deciding the old line three was like corroded and, you know, needed to something needed to be done about it. Um, one option, of course, could be to shut it down. Um, but the route that Enbridge was seeking was to um, build a new pipeline um, that was much bigger. Um, so, or that had more capacity. So Danielle um, was, you know, the, what she anticipated doing was to be like going to these public hearings, um, you know, listening to what community members had to say about um, about this project, um, you know, developing relationships with the various tribes um, that have land rights along the pipeline's path. Um, but at the beginning of um, this round of hearings, um, one of her superiors at the Commerce Department called to let her know that instead of being, you know, stationed at this table to field questions about the pipeline's impact on tribes, um, she was going to be directing guests to the cookies and um, coffee. Uh, so she'd be like a greeter, uh, which is not what she saw her job as. Mm. Um, and, you know, basically what she found out, um, what she was told by her bosses is that Enbridge found a video of her at another meeting and they went to the governor's office and um, said that they were worried that she was too sympathetic um, to people who opposed the pipeline and um, her being, you know, in this central position for the state might um, provoke more resistance. So they're like, yeah, yeah, we want you there, but you're just going to greet people. Um, so ultimately she resigned. That was part of it. But also she felt that um, some of the comments that people were submitting, um, raising concern, that tribal members were submitting, raising concerns about the pipeline um, were not really being, uh, take it into account in a serious way. And mm -hmm. she, you know, stepped, she stepped out of that role. Um, yeah. So I think this showed very early on, um, the sway that Enbridge had in, uh, in the permitting process and in, mm -hmm. um, the decision-making process for the pipeline before construction had even begin, begun. And we saw that, uh, develop, um, and become, stronger or, you know, similar, um, throughout, um, the, the rest of the project's development. I'd, I'd just like to ask, um, so obviously there, there has been wrongdoing here because the, the local people weren't really be, their, their views weren't being taken seriously, but I, I'd like to know sort of in terms of, um, land rights and sort of community rights, uh, based around that region, because uh, many of our listeners probably won't know the specifics of, um, you know, I, I guess in this case, American law, um, sort of it is, are there sort of codified clear land rights? And, you know, if, if there are those, were those being directly violated or was it sort of a more kind of vague warping, like sort of, sort of what, what was going on in a legal sense here? Sure. 
So, um, the, yeah, I, <laughs> there's a lot going on there. Um, <laughs> so the land that is now Minnesota, um, was previously, um, occupied by, uh, the Dakota people, um, as well as, um, Anishinaabe people, um, who are often referred to as Ojibwe in Minnesota. Um, now today, um, the Ojibwe people have, uh, legal rights to land in Northern Minnesota where the pipeline passes. Um, those are connected to, I think a few different treaties and different land kind of has different status. So where the pipeline passes, there are two um, reservations uh, where um, tribe, where two different tribes have a set of specific rights um, that the old pipeline passed through. Um, and there was a lot of politicking that went around there because the tribes have to agree to allow the company to um, build their pipeline through the area um, or through those reservations. Um, one tribe um, said, you know, yeah, your old, your old crusty pipeline is here, but um, we don't want you to build a new one. Um, you can't come through our reservation again uh, and you need to take the pipeline out. So that was Leech Lake, the Leech Lake reservation. Um, and again, that's an Ojibwe tribe. And then, um, or might be a band, I'm not totally sure. But, um, and then the other reservation was the Fond du Lac reservation. And um, they ultimately, initially they were opposed to the pipeline, but ultimately came around. And, you know, I think in a lot of, on a lot of these reservations and a lot of these um, communities, there's a real tension around what to do with these pipelines. This is playing out mm -hmm. now, or was has, has also played out in Wisconsin with another line or with another Enbridge project called Line Five, um, where um, the you know this easement is up for renewal, and they can say no, get your pipeline out of here, or but if they do that, the chances are or there's a decent chance that the pipeline will, or the company will find a way to just rewrite, reroute the thing. So, you know, people have connections um, and like relationships with the land beyond just the borders of the reservation. And they're mm -hmm. like, well, is this really, you know, serving us or the land if they're just going to like dig a new trench and put this harmful thing through like land that doesn't have a tar sands oil pipeline in it right yeah. now. And at the same time, there are a lot of resources that companies like Enbridge pour into these communities to pressure them to agree to build a pipeline. And, you know, a lot of resources tend to be offered. Um, and in some cases, these are communities that really are, you know, ha may have some poverty in the community, like may really, um, you know, need uh, resources to do the things that they, um, to support their people. So Fond du Lac ultimately um, signed some kind of settlement with Enbridge and allowed the pipeline to be built there. Um, and, you know, we learned that, uh, we don't know the details of the settlement, but we know, for example, that um, people on Fond du Lac get, uh, or tribal members on Fond du Lac get this like per capita distribution um, that comes from, I think it usually 
comes from like the tribe's businesses. Um, but uh, I think it was, it, I don't know if it was 2020 or 2021, people were getting these notices being like, oh, this per capita distribution is coming from Enbridge. Um, and I think it was something like, I, I shouldn't say the total because I'm not sure off the top of my head, but, um, it, you know, it was pretty significant and impacted yeah. all these households. Um, and, you know, so this caused um, tension because not everybody in the community was on board for that decision or comfortable with mm-hmm. the amount of oil money now pouring into their community. Um, you know, so the other part of this is this big chunk of land um, that's kind of in between the reservations, which is also treaty land, but it's um, land where um, a number of different tribes have rights to, um, I want to say it's hunt, um, gather, travel. um, And so there was a big legal fight put up around the pipeline passing through that land. And I think three different tribes, um, if I'm not mistaken, got involved in this legal fight saying that they weren't properly consulted Mm -hmm. on um, the pipeline's construction through that land, you know, and they've argued a number of different things, um, you know, including that their, um, you know, this land will be like damaged by the pipeline, sacred sites are being disrupted, um, you know, resources um, or you know, aspects of the land that are really, really central to people's identity will be um, destroyed. And, um, you know, that's really destructive to the to the people themselves. So, um, so that, that kind of like treaty land, that's not part of reservations is one place where people were really putting up a legal fight. And I think there may still be an ongoing legal fight. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think that's the, there's probably yeah. some other but. <laughs> oh, thank you. That was, uh, that was quite, um, quite informative. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the terms that Enbridge uh, agreed to to build the pipeline? Because I guess, you know, putting aside whether or not, um, like, we think they were right, the terms, I'm kind of also curious whether they even stuck to the terms that they were given. Uh, and of course, I also do want to talk about whether those terms were, were right to be given at all. But I I find it quite interesting to see if because um, I've heard and I've read, I guess, also from from you that that uh, they may not have stuck to uh, all of the conditions that were agreed upon. Yeah. Um, so the condition that I really honed in on in this series um, was kind of a novel one. Um, in this agreement that Enbridge signed with the public Minnesota public utilities commission, it was basically like a set of conditions, um, that they had to agree on to build their pipeline. Um, there was this clause that said that the company could not, um, should not, um, should not use counterinsurgency tactics or misinformation campaigns. And so that counterinsurgency bit, um, It's not defined in the permit. Um, We know based on, I mean, I guess to take a step back, I think to understand that counterinsurgency part, you have to go back to Standing Rock and the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota, which is next to Minnesota. It's a state neighboring Minnesota. Um, And so in, um, you know, at Standing Rock, thousands of people showed up at the edge 
edge of this reservation where this um, this other pipeline was being built, the Dakota Access Pipeline. And um, the movement was Indigenous-led, really centered on um, the Standing Rock tribe's concerns about the pipeline's impact to their water source. Um, mm-hmm. Part of the, com- the pipeline company Energy Transfer's response to this Indigenous-led movement was to send in um, this private security company uh, called Tiger Swan that had its roots in um, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, Tiger Swan was started by a special forces, an ex-special forces commander. um, And a lot of the people there were, or a lot of the security guys were ex-military, ex-special forces, and really like brought that lens into the response to the Standing Rock movement. Um, so the, the nuance of uh, special forces. <laughs> right, right. Um, so we learned, the Intercept learned and was able to kind of expose some of these tactics via this big leak of um, internal reports that Tiger Swan was sending to um, Energy Transfer, describing exactly what they were doing on the ground. And, you know, we built off of that. Um, My colleague, Will Parrish, um, also had a bunch of public records requests that kind of affirmed some of what the internal documents showed. And, you know, we were, I was able to interview some folks um, and that was, that was this other series, Oil and Water that we did. Um, But one of the things in the internal reports, you know, they made clear and very explicit that they were viewing the Standing Rock movement as an insurgency and responding with counterinsurgency tactics. Um, So, um, among those tactics, you know, there was like aerial surveillance, um, communications monitoring, um, and there was also infiltration where um, security uh, members were kind of pretending to be um, water protectors, which are what people who oppose um, that pipeline and line three mm-hmm. call themselves, um, and like making friends with people trying to. Yeah. Um, to infiltrate. Manage, control the situation in various right, yeah. ways. Um, and so when you flash to line three, uh, this, you know, you if you listen to some of the hearings that led up to this um, permit that includes the counterinsurgency language, one of the commissioners talks about, you know, like, he doesn't want to see what he saw at Standing Rock. He doesn't want to see this Pinkerton stuff. You know, Pinkerton is another yeah. um, private security company that used um, infiltration to crack down on the labor movement in the U.S. Um, and I think ultimately had faced some legal re- repercussions for that. Um, so he seemed to be worried about like infiltration. However, um, if you actually look at what counterinsurgency is and means um, to the U.S. government and around the world, it is not just infiltration. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's not just like intelligence tactics, although that is an important aspect of that. Um, And I know you guys have had Alexander Dunlap on the show, (laughs) who has lots to say about um, this corporate counterinsurgency stuff. But, um, you know. In seeing, I kind of honed in on that clause and was like, okay, well, what is this about? And are they really not using counterinsurgency tactics? Um, when, yeah, and when you start to look at what counterinsurgency is, it's really helpful um, for understanding what happens when um, these resistance 
distances grow around a line three pipeline or a Dakota access pipeline. Um, you know, the company, I think we always want to pay a lot of attention or it's always tempting to pay attention just to the response of law enforcement, um, of private security. Um, but really there's this more overarching set of tactics that's being, that's kind of like being put upon a community as they're trying to resist, um, a project of this scale. Um, especially a pipeline, which, you know, goes through lots of different properties, requires a lot of different people to, um, agree really, um, or, you know, whatever, agree. Um, so <laughs> if you look Acrius. at, yes, yeah. Um, so, you know, counterinsurgency, counterinsurgency tactics, I think at the center, at the heart of counterinsurgency is this idea of getting the surrounding community on board with the project and getting the surrounding community to kind of like fight the fight for, um, to advance your um, agenda so, or yeah. like whatever outside actor to agenda win, win the hearts and minds, right? Yep. Hearts and minds, I think is what we associate with counterinsurgency a lot, you know, um, it's not just going in and like carpet bombing everyone. It's um, getting the community to be like, yes, we believe in what you believe in. Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna like really fight for that. Um, so, you know, for this line three pipeline, um, I think I'll, I'll talk more about, I mean, at, at the center, what I think that, um, really exemplifies like a counterinsurgency tactic um, is this, the way that the company um, sort of collaborated with law enforcement and got law enforcement to um, take care of a lot of what private security um, or what, what energy transfer might've been relying on pr private security to do um, yeah. in a lot of counterinsurgency efforts by the U S government abroad. Um, use of training of local law enforcement and kind of like getting local law enforcement to take on a lot of this labor. That's just like a really common mm -hmm. tactic. It's, you know, in at least one version of um, a counterinsurgency manual that the U.S. government uses. Um, so there's that. Um, Enbridge was certainly doing that. But there's also like, yeah, going into these communities and, um donating to build community centers or, yeah. um, you know, advance these programs, uh, that are mm -hmm. supportive of the community, like offering a lot of jobs. Um, so there are these like soft and hard kind of techniques, yeah. would you say? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's really a combination of both. Okay. Um, and, and there's and some like shady stuff around the escrow account as well, uh, happening. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really, I think, central, another kind of center thing that I focused on in this policing the pipeline movement is this uh, public safety escrow account, which was also something that was in the Public Utilities Commission um, permit that we're talking about that had the anti-counterinsurgency language. So it was kind of like contradictory in and of itself. Mm. Um so, um, and this, you know, this account, um, this account was created so that basically Enbridge would put money in and a, you know, worker for the state of Minnesota would um, distribute it to, I guess, public safety agencies that were um, dealing with the 
repercussions of the pipeline. Um, so, you know, a law enforcement agency, for example, would send in an invoice, this state worker would approve or deny it. And then Enbridge would reimburse, um, whatever agency it is. And so, you know, some, there was, um, the thing was set up in part to pay for, um, I guess, uh, drug and human trafficking costs associated with the pipeline. And that's because a lot of people um, in these hearings were concerned about the issue of missing and murdered murdered indigenous women and what it would mean for this influx of temporary workers to Mm -hmm. come into the state of Minnesota. Um, But I would say most of the funding was going to law enforcement. Um, So these tiny local sheriff's agencies all along um, the route. At this point, we, I, I need to like spend some time with the latest invoices, but I think um, so far between four and 6 million has been invoiced to the account. Um, you know, again, distributed throughout a bunch of different agencies. Um, and I, that's not the end of it. You know, they're still submitting their invoices. So we don't know what the total will be. Um, but you know, this account again was a response to Standing Rock. Um, at the end, the public officials in Minnesota were really concerned about, um, what happened there, um, really wanted to avoid, um, what happened there. And um, one of the things they wanted to avoid was uh, this big bill that public agencies were left with in North Dakota at the end, you know, once um, energy transfer was done with construction. So I, again, I shouldn't quote numbers, but I don't know the top <laughs> of my head. But you can give us ballpark uh, figures. I mean, uh, I can like look it up while we're talking. Um, yeah. <laughs> Right. It's, I mean, it's no small amount. Those it's are no, I just especially for a little say. like police department yeah. in Minnesota. It's not, uh, it's nothing small. Yeah. And so North Dakota, the, the final bill, you know, distributed across a bunch of different agencies with was $38 million. And um, wow. I think that energy transfer ended up paying all or most of that. Um, but okay. that wasn't the arrangement in advance. And um Again, the Minnesota didn't want to didn't want to be stuck with those kinds of costs. Um, so we don't know exactly where the idea for this account came from, but it kind of solved that problem. It said, you know what, like this is going to happen, and clearly people are going to resist the project, but that's not going to be the res- you know you guys aren't going to have to pay for it. Um, Enbridge will cover it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, the, uh, this isn't the first time something like this appeared after Standing Rock. There was um, another pipeline that was uh, going to be built through um, the upper Midwest, including South Dakota. Um, this is the Keystone XL pipeline. Yeah. And um, that, it's another tar sands oil pipeline that people had been resisting for years. Um, and... Uh, another movement that was very indigenous led, especially in South Dakota, you know, it's the same region as the, um, as the Dakota access pipeline, uh, some of the same tribes, um, involved and, um, tribes with like a very strong history of resisting the U S government, like the Dakota, Lakota, Nakota people have, um, yeah, really put up a strong resistance to, um, the U S government 
um, up until the late um, 1800s and, and since then. Um, so South Dakota was worried about the same issue and they passed legislation that set up an account um, that would have covered um, Keystone XL policing costs. Um, ultimately that project was canceled after, um, mm. you know, President Biden came into office and um, said no to this key border crossing <laughs> permit. Um, he did not intervene with line three, um, as we know. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, I, again, the similar kind of idea of an account popped up in Minnesota. Um, we don't know exactly who's trafficking this idea. Um, so it's in the permit, this account is set up and, um, as the pipeline begins to be built, um, resistance, uh, grows as we expected and law enforcement is, um, responding, um, anticipating that Enbridge is going to foot the bill. Um, Mm. so I think that certainly has implications when we think of like about what might've happened if there wasn't any guarantee that Enbridge was going to cover costs, um, you know, yeah. what would have happened in the permitting process and what would have happened um, as law enforcement responded in some cases um, aggressively. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it just sounds already honestly insane. The idea that a, a private company can just pay police for, for anything, really. Like, I, I don't know, just as a concept that, that feels very, very strange. Um, and yeah, there's some really like shady stuff and also one of the things that i found uh kind of unreal uh while reading your your writing was um there's a helicopter that had come around for surveillance and if i understood it right um the police told you at first that there wasn't and that like it wasn't true and then a bit later said oh actually yeah it's true but i don't know who it was (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was kind of amazing. I was, um, you know, on the ground reporting this out. I guess it was like, it was almost a year ago, it was last March. And so it was like kind of the early, well, it was things really um, intensified in this resistance movement over the summer. But in March, um, you know, spring was just arriving, it was just starting to, um, you know, I guess direct actions were starting to grow, et cetera. And um, surve- surveillance by law enforcement and whoever whoever else um, was also intensifying. Um, so people were having, when I was there, people were having this experience of just being pulled over constantly. Um, you know, there was this camp that was set up um, that was um, Anishinaabe-led, um, and a lot of people who were opposed to the pipeline were staying there, and it was just like, people were just, you know, leaving the camp and being pulled over right away for very minor things. You know, it's like, oh, you didn't turn your turn signal on fast enough. Like you turned it on, but it wasn't fast enough. And, you know, um, just just like minor things. Just so that their info could be taken. Yeah, that was what people suspected. Um, And, you know, again, it's something that takes quite a lot of law enforcement resources to have somebody Con, you know, in the in the small rural county, um, keeping such a close eye on things. Um, so I think that's that account connection, um, or you know, some that's where some concerns about the account come from is the intensity of um, law enforcement's response. Um, but in 
this case, um, you know, I was visiting, there were some folks locked down to um, a pipeline um, site. Um, I think they were doing construction. I'm not sure exactly, but so people had locked down. Um, law enforcement was there to um, detach them. Um, and I was interviewing uh, one of the people who was there to resist the project. Um, this person named Big Wind, um, who is Arapaho, was also involved with Standing Rock. And um, they were telling me about this Department of Homeland Security helicopter that had flown over um, their camp. And um, this uh, local sheriff, Sheriff Gaida, who I got to talk to quite a bit, actually, um, <laughs> walked over and kind of interrupted and was like, no, you know, there's no helicopter. There's no DHS what you're saying is not true. Um, you know, you, you can't, you can't be telling lies. And, you know, big wind was really upset because it's like, they saw this, it, it happened. Mm -hmm. And, um, you've got this official kind of coming in and saying like, this isn't reality. What you're saying is not reality. Um, of course, a few days later, um, I got a phone call from Sheriff Gaida uh, leaving a voicemail to say, oh, you know, I was in this meeting and, um, I didn't know there was a helicopter, but it turns out there was a DHS helicopter. And, um, did he actually apologize? Did he say sorry about that? I think he did apologize, you know, like <laughs> Sheriff Gaida does let, I appreciate that Sheriff Gaida likes to talk. And he, uh, in this case apologized. Um, and, but I don't know, I thought it was really revealing, in that um, it wasn't the first time that, you know, one thing that also had that sense of like unreality was a lot of law enforcement officers or sheriffs that I talked to um, and, other and other people would say, um, there is no Enbridge account. You keep talking about an Enbridge account. There's mm -hmm. no Enbridge money. It's not an Enbridge account. It's a state of Minnesota account. The state of Minnesota created that account. So, and it's a state of Minnesota official who's approving these invoices. So that's not an Enbridge account. And it's like, okay, like <laughs> <that's> <laughs> real hair splitting. Um, sure. Yes. Mm -hmm. Someone else is approving the invoices, but there's no, there's no ambiguity about where that money comes from. Um, and um, so that was another, and, you know, I think also the other challenging thing about like showing what's happening there is that um, it is this, uh, the multi-agency task force that was created um, to respond to line three is called the Northern Lights Task Force. Um, that mm -hmm. is just public I guess, public officials. So it's all these sheriff's offices along the route, as well as, as some like state emergency management and like other offices. They're all working together to respond to this pipeline, but they're all these separate, separate agencies that have um, very specific personalities running things and um, that are like communicating, but not, I mean, like Enbridge can have a relationship with one agency that is different from the relationship with another agency. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's not so and there's it's not like there's one spokesperson who really can say what's happening everywhere. Um, yeah. So Sheriff Gaida can tell me there's no DHS helicopter because he doesn't know about the DHS helicopter. You know, yeah. I don't I don't think he was actually lying. I think he didn't know it was there. And I think that it 
that scenario kind of creates the possibility for um, untruths to proliferate um, without. Would you say that that's kind of part of the counterinsurgency tactics, this kind of divide and conquer style? Yeah, I mean, divide and conquer is certainly part of the, it's certainly a counterinsurgency tactic and um, one that, you know, beyond law enforcement certainly played out, has played out more than anything in um, indigenous communities uh, where the pipeline really, really needs um, the approval or, you know, it's really going to make Enbridge's life harder if a community is opposed to a project. So, um, and I think it goes beyond donations and settlements. I think there's real like intense insidious politicking that happens with, um, you know, liaisons hired that are part of the community that are, um, you know, and, and people going in and like making friends with people, you know, it's just a really kind of insidious infiltration that does create um, lasting divisions um, beyond the, or in addition to whatever pollution the pipeline ex- itself causes. Um, and this is, a, this is something that goes way back to, it's like, you know, definitely uh, the kind of tactic that, um, colonizers used as they first um, started, you know, trying to get control of indigenous land in that state and across the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, it's it's kind of old stuff, Um, but now being carried out by um, this, um, these corporations that are like driving this environmental and human crisis um that has um real implications for every single person yeah and the um the claims that kind of like focusing on the carrot part of the you know carrot and stick of the corporate cancer insurgency um the the benefits that enbridge claims um the pipeline will have uh Oops, sorry, just a notification for all the stream to see. <laughs> all my notifications are coming through for some reason. Sorry about that. thought it was on, on sleep. Um, yeah, for the, the benefits that the Enbridge is claiming uh, will come out of this pipeline, they really, like when I went on the website, Enbridge website, I think, I guess it's enbridge.com or whatever it is. Um, it's so, like, it's so surreal how, how, uh, close it is to all these other oil and pipeline company websites like it's almost like they all have first of the first the same web editor and then also (laughs) the same uh like writers as well because they all use the same terms they all use the same like menu styles and uh choices of like table of contents it's kind of scary. Like I, I remember doing some of this research for the Wet'suwet'en um methane pipeline and Okay, that one has a difference, which is they try to like greenify a little bit their own uh, project by saying, oh, it's natural gas, <laughs> isn't it? It's a, it's a natural, guys. It's greener. <laughs> what really is just, it's just cow farts. It's literally just methane. <laughs> it's not that green. Um, and the way we get it isn't green either. And yeah, and, and so like, I guess um, 
one of the things that, that sticks out most, I think, in that uh, website and, and like, I guess, which is kind of part of the corporate counterinsurgency um, are these claims to benefits. Um, and again, putting aside the fact that these so-called benefits, uh, which, you know, like they are dwarfed by the uh, ecological and sociocultural destruction because of the extractivism, right? Like these claims, whatever they may be, will not make up for the destruction. We're totally, I think everyone or a lot of people agree on that. But are these claims even correct is also what I'm wondering. Um, the claims that Enbridge makes are the about 8,600 jobs over a two-year period in Minnesota will be filled a $2 billion boost to the Minnesota economy um, with $1.5 billion of that in Enbridge spending alone, um, $330 million in payroll to workers, long-term property taxes, um, and support for the Minnesota refineries, which uh, will continue to, to, to give reliable crude oil deliveries and provide energy savings on a per-barrel basis. I'm wondering if any of your work has uh, kind of shown you that these the claims that Enbridge itself makes are maybe not uh, as um, as correct as they uh, seem to be. I mean, my work hasn't focused on many of those. I I feel like I saw another reporter do something about how many jobs in Minnesota were actually being created versus jobs for people outside of the state. Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly a really, Enbridge makes a really concerted effort to offer jobs to people um, from uh, tribal communities um, who are tribal members. Um, and they have higher, you know, some of the economic stuff, it's like, you know, they are doing making a real effort to assure that communities are dependent on Enbridge economically. And, um, you know, they, they do have a lot of money that they throw at these communities. So, you know, the property tax thing is not, um, I think that is, that can't be ignored. And they're, you know, one of, one piece that I did um, looked at, you know, via public records request, I got this email that, um, was from, I think it was the Aiken County, yeah, it was the Aiken County um, Sheriff's Department, uh, which is where Sheriff Guida is from. Um, and it was a deputy that was buying some weapons um, for, the, for the department. And, you know, he sends this like gun salesman um, an email that says our budget took a hit last week. That's all we're gonna order for now. I'm hoping the pipeline will give us an extra boost to next year's budget which should make it easier for me to propose an upgrade or trade to your rifles rather than this rebuild of our Bushmasters. They were looking for, um, I think, semi-automatic weapons. Um, so there was this idea. I mean, I think this speaks to the power that Enbridge has in the, these places that goes beyond the account. You know, this law enforcement officer is expecting that the county property taxes are going to go up and that that's going to end up in the sheriff's department's budget and he's going to be able to buy more guns. Um, so there's some incentive there. And so I talked to the Aiken County auditor. 
he told me that Enbridge was contributing like $68,000 to the county budget for 2021. And if the project entered operation, which now it has, he estimated that Enbridge would pay Aiken County $2.4 million annually um, in wow. local school and state property taxes. Um, yeah. You know, in another yeah. county, Cass County, Enbridge is among the highest single property taxpayers. Um, however, it was interesting talking to the, I mean, there's some funny stuff going on um, with Enbridge too, like, you know, Enbridge already has all these pipelines going through Minnesota. And um, recently they were fighting in court saying that they were being overcharged for property taxes and that they wanted all this money back. And a judge agreed. And so basically as this construction was starting, all these counties were like, oh, hey, guess what? Enbridge wants you to pay back like millions of dollars. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think the state was like, don't worry, counties, we're going to cover it. But this, the counties were going to see a big reduction in what they got annually from Enbridge. Now, this mm -hmm. new pipeline with new equipment that's worth more was expected to replace some of that lost income. Um, I mean, in Aitken County, there wasn't like a lot. It was a lot of the replacement line that was going to be going through. So it wasn't the same issue that this other county, Cass County, I spoke to, you know, the, the auditor there, I think it was, was or one of the county employees was telling me that Enbridge is among the highest uh, single property taxpayers. Um, however, the largest pool of property taxpayers is owners of lake homes and cabins um, who are there to like appreciate, um, you know, the natural beauty <laughs> of Minnesota and um, these like lands and waters and like aquatic life that um, are really going to be changed by the climate crisis um, yeah. and by the emissions that tar sands oil sends up into the air. Um, so I think that there's, I think it's true that Enbridge is pouring a lot of money into these communities. Mm -hmm. There's like definitely discrepancies in, in what they're, how the money is working. But I think the bigger picture is, um, you know, what good is all that money going to do if we're facing the kind of outcomes of the climate crisis yeah. that we are facing and that this particular fuel has a really special role to play in um, exacerbating. Um, yeah. 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 Climate suicide is a profitable business, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. One thing that I'm... Uh, I'm really, really interested in is, um, I guess, what some people call imaginaries, which like, um, I guess, the, the way that people, um, like the, the stories and the myths and, and things that people tell themselves um, and believe in around kind of political topics, let's say. So I was wondering what you thought about the imaginaries of the uh, opposing side so to say um because you've managed to speak to a lot of people the past few years who are either kind of like actors on, on the other side we'll just call them that even though it's quite reductive i think but um but yeah trying to the people like trying to push this pipeline through or allies contributing directly or indirectly to its development uh through like securitization or other means um and I wonder basically how they see themselves in regards to the conflict. Like, does everyone have a clean conscience? Do some people know that what they're doing 
is uh, you know has disastrous climate consequences and and I also wonder I guess in terms of um, in terms of like the specifically the counterinsurgency stuff do the people I, I don't know if you've managed to speak to them or if you would even speak to them about this or stuff but the people who are more like doing the kind of uh, more insidious stuff I guess how they they view themselves and, and what they're doing yeah, I mean, I am so curious about that question. And I don't know, I have ideas in some cases. I think I think that different people are involved and think of themselves in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, I think some people are maybe a little bit ambivalent and there to do a job. I think yeah, no, I think there's huge variation in how people approach this stuff. Like, you know, we just did a story or yeah, I, I won't, I'll, I'll just say that um, I've certainly spoken to people who have worked for um, oil and gas companies who want to talk because they feel like what these companies were doing was wrong, you know, Um there's some people who maybe think some element of what's happening is wrong, but ultimately their ideas about oil and gas and its role in the world it are, they're like, they're comfortable with, uh, or, or more, um, let me think that like, I wouldn't underestimate the power of some of like the narrative fight that these companies are playing like um do you think there's just more like self um convincing going on yeah like i've had sheriffs tell me i've had you know i've had all kinds of people talk to me about how um you know we rely on oil and gas and plastic to live our lives. And, you know, that's not changing anytime soon. And I've had uh, multiple, I've had some surprising people talk about, well, you know, I believe in climate change. I'm worried about greenhouse gas emissions, but we're not going to, this transition to renewable energy isn't going to happen overnight. And Enbridge is a partner in this. Enbridge cares about this too. And, right. um, you know, we, it's going to take time. We need this fuel for now. And um, these companies are doing their best. You know, I mean, one person that particularly comes to mind was, um, this guy that I spoke to whose family has been really involved in environmental conservation um, in, I forget what county it was, but one of the counties along the pipeline route. And, you know, this guy really, he's an older guy. He really um, thinks of himself as an environmentalist. He's really involved in the Democratic Party. Um, so he's like probably, you know, he's pretty liberal. Um, and his... Um, you know, he's on the board, the foundation board for this Long Lake Conservation Center that his father helped found. Um, you know, he had been asked at one point he had spoken out against the pipeline. Um, but later on, um, some pipeline opponents in the area asked him to sign, sign some petition and he said that he couldn't do it. And so I went and I, I asked him about it. And I mean, it turned out, it turned out, of course, that Enbridge was on the foundation board also, um, yeah. but that didn't seem to be all that really mattered. Like 
clearly Enbridge had donated some money to this to this foundation. Um, I think it was in the realm of like tens of thousands of dollars. But, you know, if you look at the organization's annual budget, it wasn't, you know, so huge of a proportion from what I could tell from, you know, Mm -hmm. from what he told me. Um, however, what seemed more important to this individual was his relationship with this fellow board member who is also, um, a key kind of tribal liaison person, um, for Enbridge. Um, and so, you know, he's telling me, well, you know, I had my concerns too, but then I met Paul and, you know, Paul is a good guy. Like Paul, you know, Paul cares about renewable energy. That's his background. And like Paul goes to the Boundary Waters, this like canoeing wilderness area in Minnesota um, with his kids. Like Paul is a good person. Paul is my friend. And, um, you know, I think that really helped guide his thinking about um, this pipeline. And Hmm. so I think that having these, Enbridge people come into communities and build real relationships with people um, and speak to them where they're at. You know, it's also rural northern Minnesota. It's uh, a lot of these community members have families who were involved in like mining or other extractive Mm -hmm. industries who sort of like relate to pipeline workers coming in and like digging up their yard, um, you know, like in a way that they don't necessarily relate to people that would um, put their bodies on the line to um, stop a destructive project. So yeah. I think that Enbridge is very well attuned to the culture of the communities that it is going into. I mean, obviously not always well attuned <laughs> enough because a lot of communities have been like, no man um but but, that's the most insidious part so far that i've heard like the like almost creating friendships and relationships i mean Mm -hmm. it it instantly reminded me of um i don't know if you've seen that uh pretty recent show dope sick um about the uh, opioid crisis with oxycontin and I mean, it's basically a similar strategy the pharma company of Purdue Pharma used in uh, promoting OxyContin with sales reps, and which I mean, every pharma company still does with their their uh, medicine, which is to send a nice buddy friend person to your local doctor and and be like, hey, doc, you like uh, you know you like the Jets? Let's go watch a, a game, and I've got tickets, or you know, let's go to this really nice restaurant you like, and and yeah, I, I can. I can, I, for me, those interpersonal, like, um, I don't know, it might, it might sound naive or, or small in the like greater impact that on the climate, on the culture, on the people. But personally, I feel like that is one of the more, uh, treacherous things that a company can do is like break that sanctity of interpersonal relations and, and like, uh, organic like friendships and relations um obviously it is dwarfed by the uh total annihilation of uh <laughs> the planet and its cultures but in the you know scale of things it, it it is still like it still feels very wrong <laughs> mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. yeah i agree uh, mm. and uh, one of the things that uh, really surprises me every time i go on the websites of, the, of these companies is 
how much effort they put in to um to make themselves seem like they are already accepted by indigenous communities whenever there are conflicts with indigenous communities uh regarding these topics and like the same thing with uh you know the cgl uh, coastal gas link pipeline with the tc mm -hmm. energy mm -hmm. like you go on the website and almost top of the list is uh, our relationship with indigenous people and and uh you know and first nations and it's like they instantly use pictures of indigenous people who have been basically co-opted by by the company to like serve the company's purposes but um but i feel like there's a lot of nuance in those like bits that a lot of the time we don't actually get to talk about um because i i was just reading a paper today from uh, i think it was from uh, verwayan and, and dunlap uh that was talking about how or mentioning that these conflicts aren't just between the company and the community they're also conflicts that seep into the community and tear that community apart where it creates a conflict between the community and the community like it's mm -hmm. it's not just uh outsider versus insider and and when i was watching some of the videos as well that tc energy for the what for the cgl pipeline was putting out it's really strange how like some uh indigenous people would come on camera to like show that they live on on you know on um on indigenous land and like on protected land they have indigenous practices of doing things like uh, i saw a video of a woman who was uh, collecting berries to make like i think some sort of food product like her ancestors have done and she was really like speaking all about you know her ancestors and her connection to the land and and all these things and then like kind of uh, adorning a, a kind of cap of of tc energy and you know and being like and that's why i support the pipeline because it'll give us more opportunity and money we desperately need and and in some ways of course those communities are the most marginalized in canada at least the indigenous first nations are the poorest they're the uh, unfortunately like the the ones that have least access to education to, to basic resources like water for example even so I don't know i guess how do you reconcile the this kind of um dissonance between the locals or indigenous people who want to collaborate with those companies in a sense because they feel like often like there's no other choice like uh, a lot of them have heard from their elders that you cannot win against the white man's company you will just lose uh so you might as well get the best deal you can get and others may see it not just as a necessity, but as a good thing because it will bring uh, these much needed resources uh, to the community. How, how do you deal, I guess, with, with that kind of um, conflict within those communities? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a good question to ask someone from those communities. But I do think yeah. <laughs> that um, that is... Um, you know, a key battleground for Enbridge and for, you know, TC Energy or any of these companies, like you, you just see more and more energy being poured into um, the uh, response that they see from indigenous communities. Um, and I should go in the next few minutes, but there's one yes. um, example that came out in one of, in, in my reporting recently, um, 
which is which I think was like kind of revealing to show what these you know what the companies are really what these companies are really about you know and what this um intensity of resources being put into indigenous communities where that really comes from um or where one place it may come from um so this i was able to review some documents um some internal enbridge documents that described this um initiative they have that's called um it goes by the acronym odot so it's opposition driven mm -hmm. operational threats and it's a tracking system to identify um threats to Enbridge's business. And so threats is defined very broadly. It's basically like anything that um, could negatively in impact the company, whether that's like an oil spill or, um, you know, property damage, um, but also reputational damage. And um, I guess what I saw in that material was the company repeatedly returning to indigenous led groups and indigenous spaces as threat areas or threat actors. And um, so one example, you know, so they were certainly looking at activists um, and people that were engaged in direct action indigenous led groups that were engaged in direct action against the pipeline, but they also um, had this like mapping system where they were coming up with a score um, to identify how much of a threat there was to the company in any given area. Um, so one of the items that they rated, that they gave a number to um, was indigenous opposition. And um, so, you know, like lo and behold, um, it was often reservations that were showing up um, as red on these maps. Um, so, and these were reservations where there were communities that, um, you know, had some power over um, agreeing to Enbridge running its pipelines. Um, and I don't know, I think that, that you know, like, something like um, indigenous opposition that could have been captured in a heading that was like political opposition. It was, you know, it's a very specific concern um, that this company had and that they were using to um, look for threats. And so we don't know how, you know, after a company like identify or after Enbridge identified an area as threat area or a group as a threat actor, we don't know exactly what they did with that information. But, you know, we see all this investment in um, some of these communities and, you know, some of the tactics that you're describing that can be so divisive. And I think um, this suggests that some of that begins with the idea of these people um, as a threat to the business. And, um, you know, it, again, coming back to this idea of counterinsurgency, you don't just see a threat and like bomb it or like send the police in like a, a lot more of what Enbridge is doing is, and some of these companies are doing, are going in and really um, changing the conditions on the ground and uh, the way people are thinking about this on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, seeding really um, impactful divisions. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess, 
all in all, why have an enemy when you could have a friend? <laughs> it's uh, much, much more productive for them. Um, yeah, sorry. I know that you're uh, in, uh, you, you have to go. But uh, just before that, I just want to ask if there's any th- like articles or works of yours that, um, that we can look forward to in uh, the kind of upcoming, you know, near future. Um, and also maybe where people can find you if they'd like to check out some of your work um, for The Intercept or elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have a big project, a big a big mapping project that's not related to pipelines that we're publishing the next couple of weeks. Um, I can't say more than that, but I'm excited to do it. Um, related to this, I mean, so there's two different um, series that we've talked about policing the pipeline and oil and water that you can both, you can find both of them on the intercepts, um, website. Um, and the other thing that I'm working on, that's kind of relevant to what we've been talking about is, um, we have been fighting, um, in court in North Dakota for, uh, something like 16,000 documents, um, internal energy transfer, or I guess Tiger Swan documents related to Standing Rock. Um, you know, we, they're, they're public records that were turned over to the, um, public security board and, um, or the private security board and, uh, energy transfer had been fighting to keep them from, um, landing in the public record. So uh, we've Mm. had some like favorable court decisions lately, and we're hoping that those documents will land soon and and tell us more about exactly what energy transfer was up to um, as it confronted indigenous opposition in the Dakotas. Um, So yeah, Um, but yeah, you can find me. I've got an author page at The Intercept, um, Eileen Brown, and then I'm on Twitter. What's my Twitter? I guess my Twitter handle is Eileen Brown. Um, yeah, <laughs> at Eileen Brown. So there you go. Okay, awesome. Uh, Eileen Brown, thank you so much for your thank work, you. for coming on the show, for speaking to us. And uh, yeah, really look forward to seeing these new projects and to see these two series as well just evolve and grow. I mean, I wish they didn't, but uh, <laughs> but if yeah. they are, we might as well have you on the ground to, to report on it for us. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for what you do. Yeah, thank you for having me.